Uh, welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, there are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you'll get some uh, notes and questions to reflect on what we talk about today during the week with other people around you. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app called YouVersion. Uh, when you download it, it'll just say Bible. You open that up, you click on More, and then Events in YouVersion. We will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Uh, This is Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 25. And it says, I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. What a great way to end this book, huh? Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to live in ways that trust you for wisdom. That we would trust you for the ways that you guide us and lead us in our lives, and we'd be a people who speak truth and hope and grace because those things have first been spoken to us, that we would live out in this world in ways that bring you great glory because you deserve it. And in you getting glory, you bring your people joy. So teach us to live as you call us to live, full of who you are, living out your great redemption of us. Amen. Have a seat. So this is, like I said, is an ending of sorts, more like a mid-season finale if you're a TV fan, uh, because we are taking a break from the book of Ecclesiastes as we finish chapter 7 today. During the summer, we're going to do this other series called I Believe in Miracles, and then at the end of summer, uh, right after Labor Day, we're going to start back up with Ecclesiastes and finish those last five chapters. We do this because people are in and out a lot during the summer, and we want to be able to help you guys get as much as Ecclesiastes as possible so you understand, because it really relates to our culture today. So I'm not going to give you a cliffhanger. Like, I hate when TV shows do that. I'm just going to give you kind of the ending and wrap this up before we get to the next part. Uh, Derek Kidner, when he talks about these verses in Ecclesiastes, says they could really serve as like the epitaph for every philosopher, where it's looking at the scheme of things, and there's no wicked and folly and foolishness and all this stuff, because when we look only under the sun, and when Solomon says that, that means in the realm of the created, that which we do with our own hands and not beyond what God does stepping into our realm, but just in our realm, it always ends up in wickedness and madness and folly. And a lot of philosophers talk about the meaning in life. This is called existentialism. And when it's only searched for under the sun, it always ends up being meaningless. So Solomon is the second wisest man who ever lived. I say that because I believe Jesus is the first. And so he looks on all these things for lasting meaning in his life. And he starts to ask questions like philosophers today do, like, why are we here? What is the purpose? Is there value and meaning in life? And so he tries to find all of these things apart from God in sex and food and folly, success, failure, politics, work, rest, probably a zillion other things I can't even remember right now. But then he also tries to find it in religion. And when I say religion, I don't mean good religion like James talks about, helping widows and orphans, but bad religion. That is like vulgar and legalistic and mean and controlling. A religion that, that is just religion with no basis in relationship with God himself, it's just a bunch of rules that you do and lacks any grace. And I always feel the disclaimer when we get to weeks like I do today, is as we walk through this, if this looks like you in your life in any way, uh, I'm just the messenger, don't shoot the mailman, I'm just here to deliver the mail. Okay, that's how it goes. Uh, Some people who are Christians, they are very devout, and that's a good thing, Uh, can be serious, we can be serious at times, very committed, but people who tend to be really into those things are the same kind of people who killed Jesus, because religion Religion leaves no place for the lost. 
just religion that is for religion itself, and it's very judgmental, and all these things become more important than the grace God calls us to. When that happens, we lose sight of who God is. Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Solomon's going to warn us about wrongly judging people multiple times throughout the scriptures. He will do this again today. Uh, One of the better examples of judging people wrongly comes about in the gospel accounts because previous to Jesus coming, the Pharisees had this stellar reputation among all the people. They were the most devout and most holy. People wanted to be them. Everybody looked up to them. I know when we see Pharisee today, we think, oh, what a horrible person. Everybody then in this culture where Jesus wanted to be a Pharisee. And so they had this very long list of man-made rules, and they never realized that they were dead and lost. And so when Jesus comes, what he does is he attacks their self-righteousness because he's trying to expose their hearts, because it typically always comes down to our hearts. And I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there's this old bumper sticker that people used to put on their cars, and it says, Jesus, save me from your followers. Because it's, it's true. If you've been around a church any length of time, being a Christian any length of time, you know how easy it is for Christians to become very judgmental and self-righteous. And so Solomon ends chapter, uh, what we looked at last week, chapter 7, verse 20, he, we ended with this. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. It's the idea that wisdom is found in those who are honest about their failings because when we're honest about our failings, we know that we all need Jesus. So Ecclesiastes now tries to get us to take a look at ourselves Maybe not take ourselves so seriously, but take God seriously for who he is and and what he has done, and that our lives in the end are not in our own hands. So this is where he goes, chapter 7, verse 21. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Now, this could be twofold. One, it could be someone really is saying some bad things about you, because sooner or later in life, people will say derogatory things about you. People will talk about you behind your back. Now, what's the standard response when we hear someone talk about us behind our back? How dare you? You should never do this to me. And then we write them off and kick them out of our lives. Solomon says, you're a dummy when you do that. Because he says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. We expect everybody else to be perfect, but we don't expect ourselves to. See, it's, why can't we just get that? It's why Solomon says in the very next verse, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. People talk trash. Okay, it's, it's what we do. It's not right, but we've all done it. Should we stop? Yes, we should stop. That would be a good thing. But when you hear it, why not go find out why somebody said what they did? And if, you, if you've said something about somebody else, why not have enough guts to admit it and why you said it? It could just be, I was having a bad day. And I was lashing out, and I'm really sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to say that. Or maybe there's some truth in it that you really need to begin to talk about. Maybe there's something you should apologize for, and you should grow. You know how much stuff people say about me behind my back? You know how much of it's true? All of it, right? All of it. You know how much I talk about you behind your back? <laughs> no, I'm kidding, a little bit. No. Blaise Pascal once wrote this. He said, if all men knew what each said of the other, there would not be four friends in the world. How true is that? How true is that? Solomon is telling us that when we're wise, we'll be careful not to take so much interest in what other people are saying about us because sometimes people just talk. It doesn't mean they don't love us or care about us. It's just kind of what people do, and it wasn't even meant for our ears, which leads to my second thing in this twofold issue of this is that we should try to be a people who assume the best of others and not the worst. Too often when somebody does something or says something, we're always assuming the worst of what that is. Now, sometimes, yes, people may want to destroy you, but hopefully if you 
have surrounded yourself in your life with some friends, you should love them and trust them enough that they don't want to tear you down. So look for the good many times in what they are doing. And, and in this, if you have people around you who like to gospel a lot, understand that that's what they are and that's what they're doing. So when you hear gospers, be smarter about what they say. Because if they are saying that about somebody else to you, what are they saying about you to somebody else? Solomon says, don't run about trying to hear what everyone else is saying because it's going to make you paranoid. I'm going to whittle down elements counseling load today, by the way. Um, Charles, that was a joke. Charles Bridges in his commentary in these verses says this. Listeners standing on the tiptoe of suspicion seldom hear good of themselves because we're always looking for the bad. And when you look for the bad, you're going to jump on any opportunity to hear it. Uh, C.S. Lewis in his Narnia books, one of them is called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And there's this young girl, her name is Lucy, and she looks in a magician's book and she finds this incantation that's going to enable her to hear what her friends are saying about her. And just like us, she can't resist, so she casts the spell. And right away she hears Marjorie Preston telling Anne Featherstone that although Lucy was not a bad little kid in her way, she's getting pretty tired of her by the end of term. That's not even really that bad of a thing to say. We all get tired of everybody else. I get tired of you. You get tired of me. It's like, I don't want to go to Element today. i got to deal with Aaron. You just, I, I get it, okay? If, if Lucy would have left it alone, she would have kept a friendship really intact. But the same things happen to us. when We're always insisting on what everyone else is saying about us. Philip Ryken writes this. He says, know what to hear and what to ignore, especially when it comes to criticism. This is one of the ways that wisdom makes us strong. It helps us not to be overly concerned about what other people say. It teaches us not to take offense, but to respond with gentleness and grace, even when the things that people say may seem unfair. Because people who gossip never say they gossip. They typically say things like, oh, I'm a prayer warrior. Why don't you tell me about everybody else and all the things in their lives so I can pray for them? No, they're gospers. It's, it's what they are. Just learn to ignore those people. It's really funny if you can get it down really well because they freak out. Yeah, I, I, I think about the best things I've heard about me behind my back are, are things like, oh, he thinks he's funny. Oh, he talks too fast. When does he even take a breath up there? <laughs> See? See? I hear you. I hear you. Why does he hate country music and boy bands and cats so much? He's a jerk. How does his wife live with that guy? Sometimes not well, right? But, but I, you just, you, you just got to let it go. You let it go. You will say things about me. I may say things about you. It's the way it goes. Uh, you've said things about other people, so, so don't freak out. Remember, what happens typically when we sin against others is we want grace from them. But when other people sin against us, we want retribution. How about we start to be a people that respond with grace because God has first given grace to us. We are all people who have failed to meet God's standard of perfect speech. The book of James says, The tongue is a fire, and evil no man can tame. So Solomon keeps going. These are these ideas that there's really nobody righteous. There's no one that has never sinned. So he tries to then show us how hard wisdom is to actually live in. Uh, Chapter 7, verses 23 to 25. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it? And this is not just talking about chapter 7, but the entire book so far. Verse 25, I turn my heart to know and search out and seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Solomon has tried his entire life to be wise, to understand it all under the sun. And he realizes that true, full, encompassing wisdom and knowledge is beyond him. And he must in the end trust God for it. 
an element as a people, I would encourage you, please, please get this. There are some things that you and I, we will never have the answers for under the sun. Many times we are people who get so engrossed in things that we read when we like it or listen to or study, and then we want to debate it because we think so much about it. I think this relates very well to Star Wars geeks. If you're a Star Wars geek, let me just say this. The Last Jedi was not a good movie. Okay? George Lucas is not a genius. Don't attack me afterwards. I'm just letting you know the truth. You're welcome. Thus says the Lord. Uh, Everyone likes to think that they are so smart about something. You may not think you are, but everybody has something. I, I'm not a person who ever likes wine, but if my wife and her friends want to go wine tasting, I will drive them, okay? Because they'll be like, oh, here's the bouquet. You've got those people like pouring the wine. This is a bouquet of with the, I don't know, Flippenberger. I don't know. And they go, here. And I'm like, smells like wine. Smells terrible. Ugh, horrible, right? But everybody's like, oh, yes, I can taste the nutty oak of the tree that fell in the river last year. And I... I don't know, right? Be honest enough to say you don't know. Because it's, it's true, right? It's, it's what we do with everything. Like Some people will talk about certain movies. Like I like Marvel comics, okay? I know a little bit about Marvel, but when you talk to these geeks, I know nothing. It's okay to say I don't know anything. This could be the Bible. I'll tell you, the more I read and study the scriptures, the less I realize that I actually know. Because it is so deep and so amazing. It could be construction. I know just enough to be dangerous in construction. So I talk to other people about things. It could be cars. Like, I know just enough when I'm working on my car to be a little bit dangerous. It's better to realize we can know next to nothing about something. So I don't have to argue with people who want to argue like they know everything in the world. Sometimes people will occasionally come up to me after a service about something I've talked about. And they want to argue some minute point of scripture, which I don't mind, right? But I don't want to do it on a Sunday morning. I don't really have time for it. But they're like, no, let's talk about this now. I, people come up and they're like, they quote Leviticus because nobody reads it. And they're like, oh, in Leviticus it says the red heifer and the chupacabra. And, blah, blah, blah. and I'm like, I don't really care. You know, it's, I don't really need to get involved in this. Sometimes it's okay when you love God to say, I don't know. And the only thing I do know is that I love Jesus and he loves me. And that's where you start. And that's where you begin to move forward. I, I mean, what I don't know about something like, you know, speaking in tongues, some people are like, oh, I know it all. Don't say you do. I mean, I'm not charismatic, but I'm also not a cessationist who say gifts like that can't happen any longer because I don't know all that God intended. I don't, I don't, I know that I'm not God. And I, and I can't say God can't do that because I find it weird, right? I can't do that. So, so many people come to Jesus and we're so humble in the beginning. And then six months or two years later, we act like we have God's whole theological plan downloaded into our brains through angel radio. And now we're going to talk to everybody else about it. It's so weird because we are all growing. We are all learning. That's what we're meant to understand. How about books on the rapture, right? Everybody's got their ideas. That's going to hand and rushes the bear. And it's going to run down, like all this stuff. When, when Jesus comes back, okay, premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, some of you are like, ah, uh, what? Ex- exactly, right? It hasn't happened. It's like the Super Bowl of the World Series. Who's going to win? You've got to wait for game day. That's how it's got to work. What I do know is that Jesus will come because he promised. So I trust him that he's good for his promises. And it's going to be a very good day. What we must do as a people is we must approach everything with Two hands, okay? Open-handed and closed-handed things. And there are closed-handed issues for us, especially as a church. Jesus is God. He died for our sins. He rose from the grave. The gospel is good news of his salvation. Man is sinful. God is good, and God loves us. Closed-handed issues. We will die for those things. But there are also open-handed issues that we can talk and debate about and have fun and not break relationship over. Like, Like six days of creation, six million years of creation. Rapture or not. Drink, don't drink. Dance, don't dance. Country music or not. Although that's pretty... Uh, yeah. uh, 
open-handed so we can love Jesus and get along. We have to have these two hands. This, this is, I, I think when you have two hands, you can actually have relationship with other people, and Christians have to use both of those in order to get along. Foolish people hold everything in a closed hand and always want to argue over everything, especially when it doesn't matter. And they will talk about you behind your back because you're not as smart as they are. So Solomon is saying, wisdom is too deep for anyone to get to the bottom of, but that still shouldn't stop us from ever seeking out wisdom and trusting God and asking him for wisdom because we should know the difference between wise and foolish ways. But he comes back to understanding, like it always does, that the biggest problem is in the human heart. Chapter 7, verse 26. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Now this is not necessarily a chauvinistic statement in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Some commentators think he's referring to a person. Most commentators, though, believe that he is talking about uh, this thing that ensnares our hearts in certain ways, that our hearts get ensnared by lots of things. In this way, it's sex and seduction. He's not saying all women are like this. He's not saying all men are like this. But we are prone to try and find things in our lives that capture and ensnare our hearts that are not first gospel-centered. It's saying that when temptations come, rather than being lured by all these desires under the sun, remind yourself, that our hearts are always longing for something that's going to trap us. And if we give into those things, it is more bitter than death. This could be how he talks about how good gossip feels, or trying to be more intelligent than other people are, or espousing all of your own wisdom, everything he talked about already. Or it could be, in the end, here, like sexual in nature. And I think it is then also reminding us to be careful who we connect our lives to. Not just in friendship, but really romantically. People who we should connect our lives to in a romantic way, it, it should be the exact opposite of a snare and a trap. I mean, I have met some couples who are snares and traps for each other, and they're miserable together. Some people will egg each other on. Like, if you think someone is talking about you from the first verses we talked about today, a good spouse is going to come in and say, why are you upset? Why are you upset? You know, what do you think that person said? Or why do you think they may have said what they said? Your spouse should not automatically jump on the bandwagon of, oh, yeah, I can't believe what you thought they said about you. Go get them, honey. You know, that's, that's not what they should do. I mean, how do you know you married the right person in your life? In the most loving way possible, I'm going to say this, they bug you a little bit. Okay, they just bug you ju- just a little bit in there. Because when you're sinning, a good partner is going to come along and point it out nicely. When you're being freaky and weird, they're not like, yeah, they're going to say, whoa, slow down, pump the brakes, okay, not keep going, baby. Like, my wife in my life is a very good stabilizing force for me. If you know anything about me, I can be a little nutty sometimes, right? And she will ask me things like, what well, did you pray about that? I'm like, no, you know, <laughs> or I'll say, yes, I did when I, you know, is, is that, is that really true? What you just said uh, uh, about this, she is brutally honest with me. I mean, honest, sometimes I'd rather her put a doily on her head and just vote for me and all my weirdness, but that's not what God intended in, in a marriage, right? <laughs> if, if you are someone in your life and, and you have this idea in your head, like I want to get married someday and you have a list of what that person has to look like. Other than Jesus, everything on that list, just burn it because that person doesn't exist. If I came out with a list before I got married, it wouldn't look like this. I want a woman who plays Xbox, just not as good as me. I want someone who knows how to make Kung Pao chicken, laughs at my jokes, has no sense of smell, <laughs> and thinks guys named Aaron are awesome. That would have been the list, right? But if that person exists, they can do much better than me, all right? And if you list, they can do much better than you. You're really, in the most loving way possible, you need a spouse that kind of bugs you a bit because the purpose of a marriage is not just to make you happy, it's to make us holy. 
It's to help to make us understand who God is and what God is doing, how he calls us to himself. And in context of all of Ecclesiastes is saying, all of this relates and the snares, and the fetters, and the words, and all the things that we say. Solomon makes it clear he believes in the possibility of holiness, but he was disappointed by all the ungodliness around him under the sun, because holiness will only come from God's bestowing of as a gift upon us. I'm going to read the next verses, and don't freak out. Verses 27 and 28. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but one woman among these I have not found. He doesn't come out and write and say it, but the implication is he's looking for a wise person. And out of a thousand men, he only found one. And out of a thousand women, he didn't find any. But before you accuse him of being chauvinist and sexist, it could be true as the culture of the day and what that is. We need to see these verses in the total context of Ecclesiastes. Uh, it has much more to say about sinful men than sinful women. Sin is equal opportunity. And Solomon has already said in verse 20 again, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So even the one good man in a thousand was still a sinner. And so if he speaks to us about the wickedness of men over and over, we should not be offended if he also talks about the folly of women, even though that's a major taboo in our culture today. Uh, Solomon's a guy who knew some godly men, like the prophet Nathaniel. But he is a guy who had a thousand wives and concubines in his royal harem. These are unbelieving women who worship foreign gods. And it should not be surprising to us that there is not one known for her godliness. The Bible says that these women turned Solomon's heart away to worship by their gods in 1 Kings 11, 1 through 8. And Solomon is saying what the scriptures say elsewhere, that their hearts were this bitter trap that led to his tragic downfall. Now Solomon is responsible for his decisions in this, but his heart was still ensnared. And they influence what he, what he says here. But in the context of the entire Bible, what do we remember? Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Now, there's lots of places in the scriptures where it praises women for their godliness. There's a beautiful bride in Psalm 45, the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, the single women in Luke 8 who helped Jesus and support him in his ministry. All these women are characterized by single-hearted devotion to God. They, if they were married, they had fidelity to their marriage covenant. But Solomon, as this preacher king in Ecclesiastes, doesn't know any women like that. And that's what he gets for trying to love a thousand godless women. It's, it's this idea of madness and folly that he talks about. But for us today, we can praise the many godly women you do see in the scriptures who love Jesus. Martin Luther once said this, There is nothing on earth so lovely as a woman's heart with God's grace to guide its love. And if you want to know how to pray for really anybody in your life, but especially the women around you, pray for them, that they would become that one woman in a thousand who has a gracious heart guided by God's love. But this is the idea about snares and traps that we always fall into. And so Solomon then goes and rounds out chapter 7 like this. See this alone I found. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. And if you don't discount Solomon's words here and actually try to understand all that he is saying, you can look through the entire book and see all the schemes that he got into into his life. Trying with, with fame and music and money and sex and laughter and alcohol and food and all these different... He tries all of these schemes to find a way to get meaning and purpose in life under the sun apart from God. And none of it fulfills. They're just all schemes. And it kind of goes back to Genesis and where Adam tries to do life apart from God. And one of the issues, you see, every time that Solomon runs after something, he comes back and says, it's a scheme. I'm trying to do life apart from God, and he points it out. This is the whole thing of what he's been talking about as being under the sun. And none of our schemes ever work. And yet we still get involved in schemes 
today. Like, uh, churches will be like, you know, fast for 40 days and God will give you whatever you want. Get a will and spend on God's will of fortune. Or three years ago, it was read this little book and once a week and pray this prayer every day for 30 days based on some obscure guy from the Old Testament. And God will give you so much stuff. You're going to need a U-Haul to carry it all around. They're all schemes. We get involved in schemes. Churches still do this today. But we need to understand that what Solomon says is the conduct in our lives is ultimately going to come out of our hearts. And if we don't love Jesus, nothing we do under the sun means a thing. When we actually love Jesus, we will give to others. We will love other people. How do I get you to read your Bible? It's not by making some scheme for you. What I do is I tell you that Jesus loves you, and we should be a people who love him back because he's first loved us. I do not get you to be generous and give to element by some scheme like, uh, here's a nightlight with me and my wife's picture on it. Plug it in your bathroom at night. It'll be great for you. Or, oh, I snotted or cried on this hanky. I'll send it to you and you be generous with us. No, what I tell you is how much Jesus gave for us, what he did to rescue us. And we simply give back in a way that distributes to those in need. Guys, all the schemes that we get into, all of our religiosity, it doesn't change us for long. But Jesus will change us forever. Religious people focused on law have a hard time understanding how grace flows out of love. It's like this. I hang out with my wife because I like it. I read my Bible because I like it. I pray not as much as I should, okay, but I pray because I love Jesus. I, I give because God has been generous to me. It's not a scheme. And when we truly see what God has done, all the questions Solomon asks, and we see ultimately what God has done when Jesus comes to rescue us, it's going to change us because we're not trying to do all of these schemes. Again, chapter 7, verse 25, I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things, all the things that he's talking about, to know wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. False interreligion is all of those things. It is schemes and stupidity and wickedness and madness. Like I said at the beginning, Jesus' biggest fight was with the Pharisees, the most holy and loyal and devout and committed, consistent guys. And they killed Jesus because false religion leaves no place for God. They will talk about God all the time, but they never talk to or listen to him. If we are a people who think we can do it on our own strength, that we can judge ourselves, then we'll think we have no need for God. Do we want to be a righteous people? Of course we do. But we must never abandon that goal, but understand that it comes through Jesus and not our own strength. It's not gossip or the power of our personal religiosity or all that. When you get to the New Testament, it really pulls all of these ideas together. Romans 3.10 sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes 7.20. Ecclesiastes 7.20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Romans 3.10 will say, No one is righteous, no, not one. How do we drop these schemes? We understand the gospel. The good news of God's rescue of us, that we always must come back to his rescue of us. Romans 3, 21 to 26 plays out what this looks like after no one is righteous, no, not one. This is what Paul says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all run after our schemes. We've all run away from God trying to do our own thing. And yet, they are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
the point of every question of Solomon. The point of all of the scriptures is Jesus. He is God. He gives us righteousness. And we get to live in grace to be a free people because of what he has done. Not because of our schemes. Not because of what we have done. Not because of all the intellect we think that we have. It is all because of what Jesus has done. And that is what the gospel is about what God did to rescue us. This is why we go to communion every week as that reminder of what Jesus did to rescue us. That's why you break the cracker like Christ's body was broken for us and you dip it in the wine or the grape juice because it reminds us of God's blood, Jesus' blood that was shed for you and me as a people. That we are a people who get to experience grace and hope and goodness and life again because of what God has first done to rescue us. We center our lives on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the results of that brings many different things into our lives. The results of that is what brings us to a place where we get to live out the gospel in the ways that make sense in the world. Now, the band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to invite you guys to take uh, communion. As I said, there's going to be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you guys need prayer, maybe you're in a place today where you have all these schemes in your life where you're trying to do all these things, either to make God love you more, to if I just get this right, if I just do that, well, then I'll live this Christian life the right way. I just got to, you know, they would love to pray about that because what we want to do is we want to set everything at the foot of Christ and who he is and what he has done. At Element, I always tell you this, we are always about Jesus. I have one sermon. It is Jesus every week. Same thing. That's where we got to go because that is the point of our rescue and our salvation. And if our eyes are not fixed upon him, nothing in our lives is going to change or be different. So when our eyes are fixed upon him, the results of that brings change in our lives where we do love, where we do step away from all the schemes that are around us, where we do trust and honor him with all that we are because he is good. And if you would like to talk to somebody or pray somebody with somebody about that this morning, they'll be in the back to pray with you. Um, they're offering boxes next to all the doors we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's always meant to be a response to what God has done in us. There's some snacks outside. Grab something to eat. Maybe take some sermon notes. Maybe sit down with your friends this week or people in your gospel community. Ask the questions like, hey, what have you said about me behind my back? See if they're going to be honest enough to answer you. And tell them what you said. That's a great discussion starter. It's a great way to learn how to, you know, here's some grace. Now let's talk about it. I mean, and the thing is, you've got to understand, you know, in 1 Corinthians 13, it will tell you that, that love is not irritable. And too often when we hear things, we just get so irritated so quickly. But I think when we love one another, we can begin to have these discussions because many times what people will say about us to other people are things that we could grow in. And so we need to love one another enough to hear what people are saying. I, this guy came after first service and he goes, well, now my wife, we're going to fight today, thanks. You know? <laughs> I'm like, that's not what I was saying. And he's all, that's what's going to happen. And I'm like... They got to bug each other a little bit, I guess. Um, but th- this is the deal, guys. We become a people, Christ-centered, gospel-centered in all that we do, so he is lifted up in all things. And that is what will change us to leave all of our schemes behind and to trust him for the great salvation that he has first given to us. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I want to thank you, God, for all these weeks of Ecclesiastes so far, for constantly reminding us and showing us all the ways and schemes we tend to want to jump into in our lives. And Father, I thank you that you have given us your spirit to lead us into truth and to grace and to hope and to life. That you, by what you have done, have set us free. That we can never, as a people, gain or garner our own freedom on our own. 
And this is why you step in to rescue and save us. So I ask that we would be a people who are fully enthralled with who you are. That we would trust you for the beauty and majesty that you display. And how that then will be lived out in the world around us in ways that bring you great glory as we get to live in the joy that you provide. Have us understand the gospel in ways that changes all that we are. That all that we are is different because we understand your love first given to us. And that you would guide us and lead us into the truth that we need to know. Father, thank you for loving us, for the grace, for the hope. Have us be a people who reflect that in how we live. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.